0: Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or walmart.com. Welcome to the VBAC
1: Link Podcast. We are a team of expert doulas trained in supporting VBAC have had VBACs of our own and work extensively with VBAC women and their providers. We are here to provide detailed VBAC and cesarean prevention stories and facts in a simple, consolidated format. When we were moms preparing to VBAC, it was stories and information like we will be sharing in this podcast that helped fine-tune our intuition and build confidence in our birth preparations. We hope this does the same for you. To hear more about us and to hear our individual VBAC stories, be sure to check out episodes 1, 2, and 3. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional.
2: Good morning, everybody. This is Megan and Julie, your VBAC Link podcast hosts, and today we have a special episode for you. We have been told by multiple people, or it has been requested, that we have an episode that is geared towards first-time moms. So it's so important as first-time moms to know a lot about birth and be educated just as much as it is for our VBAC moms. Because our VBAC moms, they've had their cesareans and now they're prepping for their VBAC. But for first-time moms, we want to try and educate on cesarean prevention. And things that are commonly, I guess, diagnosed and told um, that bring on cesareans in the first place and and things that are done but we have a story today for you of a mom who did some amazing things to avoid having a cesarean so yeah Julie would you like to say anything about
1: this awesome episode yeah you know guys I am so excited to be sharing this with you because truly just talking with Tama with (laughs) Hannah. (laughs) <laughs> at the beginning of the episode, you know, we we put so much trust in our providers, and, and we should, and, but at the same time, there's so much more that, that people tell you with authority that you assume is just, you know, the gold standard or the only way, but the thing is, women, you have options, and just kind of an, a little example, I was at a birth uh, last week where the provider comes in, and it was very, very fast labor. And the provider comes in, and he's, you know, he's only there for 20 minutes. But the husband, you know, while, while the mother was pushing, her husband said to the provider, oh, we want to do delayed cord comping. And the provider turned to him and said, oh, well, we milk the cord. That's the standard. And I was like, oh, is that how they do it in this hospital? Because I hadn't been to that particular hospital before. And the doctor looked at me and he's like, that's how they do it in all hospitals. And I said, oh, okay. and like nodded my head. But in my mind, I'm thinking how incorrect that doctor was. I have never seen that as a standard practice in any hospital. And delayed cord clamping, you know, um, it means so many things. And at every different hospital and every different provider, you're going to have a different experience and a different answer. I was at a different birth where they said, I stopped the provider before he cut the cord. I said, hey, wait a minute. They wanted to do delayed cord clamping. And the doctor turned his head and hollered back at me, it's already been a minute, and cut the cord. And... Oh. That's an, you know, that's an, that's an example of how everything else varies. And in, in, in another hospital, the standard is wait five minutes. But if you want true delayed cord clamping where your cord is a spaghetti noodle, you know, you got to tell them, I want my cord to look like a spaghetti noodle. I don't want it clamped. I don't want it cut. You know, like, I'm serious. It's, it's the different options like that available when a doctor will speak so, so authoritatively that Mm-hmm. You you wouldn't have a reason to question it. So I'm glad we're doing this episode. I'm glad that Hannah reached out to us to share her story. And guys, it is an amazing one. And in the end, we're going to talk more about things that you can do as a first time mom and any time mom, I guess.
2: Really? <laughs> to yeah. sections
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this
2: is this is definitely you know, an episode that can apply for anybody that wants to avoid an unnecessary cesarean. So, well, I'm excited to have this today. And, Hannah, we're so excited to have you, and we can't wait for you to share your story because, girl, you you did something that is hard, especially for first-time moms. It's it's hard, mm-hmm. and I want everyone to know that as a female, for our first-time moms listening, that it, it's hard to make changes like Hannah made and you know and it's okay too though. Like we want you to know it's okay. So mm-hmm. Hannah if you wouldn't mind sharing both of your birth stories we would love it.
3: Yeah thanks for having me and um, I'm so glad that you guys have this podcast for other women. I wish that I could have had it um, with my first pregnancy because um, yeah I, w- I just was raised to think that no, birth was the most painful thing you could go through, and just to go with the flow, you don't question the doctor. you go to the hospital, you get the epidural, and um yeah, that's what I did when it was my first pregnancy. I didn't prepare at all. I didn't do any research. I just I didn't think that there was anything to do. I, I just did what the doctor said, and so with my first child, I was induced at forty one weeks because they said that she was measuring really big. And I wanted to, and that if I didn't want to risk a C-section, I should get induced. And so I was induced at midnight on the 24th. And then I got the epidural at 9 a.m. And she wasn't born until 2 a.m. And because she didn't want to get in the right position, which I don't blame her because she wasn't ready to come. So, yeah, she... She came at 2 a.m., and when her head was delivered, her shoulder turned, and so the room became really frantic, and uh, they started talking about prepping the ER, and um, yeah, my husband didn't, like, we didn't go in with a birthing plan or anything, so I'm really thankful that my doctor took control of the situation and was able to deliver my baby and turn her, and otherwise I would have had a C-section. But the second time I got pregnant, I continued to go. I went to a new OB because I was still terrified of having an all-natural birth. But uh, I did go to the OB, and the first appointment, she started talking about a C-section because of the shoulder dystocia. So that kind of made me really uncomfortable, and I am a very passive person, so I do not like I I am the person that... You know, my mom would say something like, show me an outfit that she likes, and I hate it, (laughs) sorry, Mom. (laughs) But, uh, and I would say, oh, I love it. (laughs) So, yeah, that's me. (laughs) I have done that myself. I (laughs) I don't get it. So, yeah, I kept going to this OB for a few months, but finally she said, um, she said that if my baby was measuring eight pounds or larger, which uh, I don't think I said my first baby was nine pounds, six ounces. She said, if this baby was measuring eight pounds, that I should really consider a C-section. And she made me feel like I had no other option. So I just could not stop thinking about it all day, every day. And finally, I started asking questions. I started talking to other mamas. Like Another mom that was a doula really encouraged me to contact a midwife, and that's what I did. And one of the first things the midwife said to me was that she believed that I could give birth to a 10-pound baby, <laughs> and so that moment was the biggest relief, and, um, yeah, I went on to have a beautiful delivery. I took a birthing, hypnobirthing class, and I labored in the water, and, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, she didn't get stuck in the birth, birthing canal, and it was, it was a beautiful moment receiving her. I was really present, and I felt like, you know, the hip, this whole experience changed my mindset on birth that it could be a beautiful thing and, and that I could be excited. And. So yeah, it made a huge difference just doing your research and learning. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're moving forward to making the best decision for your baby. Cause yes, you're thinking about it and not just going with emotions you now and just following your instincts. Like if you have a gut feeling that this isn't right. I think it's so important to just get multiple opinions, professional opinions. Yeah, for
2: sure. You know, and we talk about in the instinct and our mother's intuition so much in our doula class. And if you guys, if the listeners have taken our parent feedback prep class, you know we cannot stress the intuition enough because it is so real. It is so real. Mm-hmm. And if we don't follow it, it can lead us down a path that's less desirable. You yeah. know, with with my first birth, I didn't really know. I didn't prep and I didn't really, I guess I didn't really even know how to tune into my intuition. And after my C-section and I was prepping for my V back, like I did, I had that feeling at 36 weeks that... I wasn't in the right place and just, mm-hmm. just based on the things that were being told, you know, I was being told and, and I was too scared and, and it's overwhelming. I can't say that it isn't, it's, it's overwhelming to try and start over mid pregnancy and finding a new provider mm-hmm. or, or it, it might not even being find a new provider, you know, it might be something else, but it's so important to listen to it because it can, I mean, look at you, like, you would have had a cesarean, yeah, because you thought I your baby have. was, you know, was eight pounds over eight pounds, and here you are, almost delivering literally a ten pound baby, nine pounds thirteen ounces. Yeah, I mean, a bigger that's baby. a ten pound baby, and no shoulder dystocia, mm-hmm. and no problems, and so half the time, it's so yeah, half the time. I mean, it's so important, and you know, as first time moms, there's so much prep that we can do, and I feel like nowadays in the birth forums and obviously here we are on this podcast and in our class, there's so much that we can learn. So Julie, did you want to talk about kind of like the four main reasons why a cesarean would even really, I mean, there's lots of ways, but like reasons, but like the four main
1: reasons of why a cesarean would happen. I would love to. And you guys, you probably already know about all these four reasons and I bet you're probably giving talking points right along with me in this episode so let's play a game if you know what I'm gonna say about each of these reasons for a section then you can award yourself 500 Julie points per reason so go ahead and keep the tally I know y'all like to have those Julie points so let me know how many you got right out of the four so the first one is failure to progress and we're going to talk a little bit about that because I got told I was failure to progress Megan got told she was failure to progress there's a lot of women that get told that the reason why they where they have a c-section is because their cervix failed to dilate or the baby failed to descend and on that topic, I'm gonna to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
2: on that topic, literally two days ago, um, at the hospital, a mom is nine centimeters, 100 percent effaced. Everything is going great. A half hour later, they come in and they check her cervix, and she's still nine. And the nurse says, "Oh, honey, you might need to get ready for a C-section." Oh, sorry, oh. my little boy is um just you know making himself on the podcast in the background, but. <laughs> They said, oh, honey, you might need to prep yourself for a C-section. And I kind of was like, what? And she looked at me and was like, why? And she said, well, your cervix just isn't making any change. And we were like, give 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And then 30 more minutes, you know, so now an hour, a resident came in and said the same thing. Well, you know, we'll give you a little bit more time, but the cervix isn't making the change that we expect it to make. So, yeah, like,
3: stuff like that happens. It really happens. Mm. Can and I add something to that? Yeah, please, go ahead. Yeah, I would, um, you know, my cervix gave me some difficulty, and it um, it wasn't thin enough for her to pass it for almost up until the last, like, hour or two. So I can't imagine that if I was at a hospital, what they would have done, because my midwife was very patient. <laughs> Yes,
1: and sometimes patience is all you need. In fact, ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine in 2011 put out new updates for the term failure to progress. And you can find that information, like I said, linked on our website at our blog, thevbacklink.com slash blog. But it says that failure to progress, true failure to progress, is when the cervix has made no change. Her water has ruptured and she has to be at least six centimeters dilated for six hours. You guys, all three of those things. Six centimeters. Water's broken and no cervical change in six hours. It's a long time. And our cervixes are incredible. We expect them to go to Fort Knox. You know, from Fort Knox to keeping that baby in tight to wide open letting the baby out. And so the cervix does a lot of things. If you want to know more about that, we talk a lot about it in our VBAC courses, either online or in person. Yeah. So the next... Oh, go ahead. I'm just oh, trying no, to rush fine. right into it. You, I, I
2: was going <laughs> to point out, too. Yes, six hours, but also um, that's in active labor. That is once labor has gotten into active labor, yep. which is six, six centimeters, centimeters or, or more. more. So, like, for my instance, for... My birth, my first two births, I was three centimeters for you know a little while. I like I think I was three centimeters for like well I think it's probably four hours, and they were like, oh, it's failure to progress. Your cervix doesn't know how to dilate. So keeping in mind that if that is an yeah. active labor, six
1: centimeters or more. Go ahead, Julie. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's true. And you know what? Getting to six centimeters is the longest part of labor. So true failure to progress, there's probably something else going on there, or just, you know, failure to wait. So fetal heart problems is the second reason baby's heart rate's not doing good. And in, especially in VBAC, I know we're not talking to VBAC necessarily, but I know y'all are listening still, 70% of rupture cases, fetal heart tones were one of the first signs of a rupture. But it's normal for a fetal heart rate to to dip and rise a little bit during labor, you know, especially with the contractions. The uterus is squeezing that mm-hmm. baby really tight. And so normal heart rate variation or heart rate variations are normal. And different hospitals have different okay. rules for how many D cells or accelerations they'll allow and it has to do a lot with the baby's baseline, you know, the baseline. But a lot of times an issue with fetal heart rate can be changed simply by switching positions, like switching laboring positions. If you have an epidural, roll to your other side. Get a peanut ball out. If you, if you don't have an epidural, then do something different because a lot of it has to do with where the cord is in relation to the baby's head. If you think about it, if the head and the uterus are sandwiching the cord in between them, when the uterus contracts, it squeezes the cord, which affects the blood flow to the baby. So simple position changes, guys. Change your position before you rush into a C-section. Make your doctor listen to (laughs) you. The third reason is malpresentation or breach. And the cool thing about that is in 2018, yeah, that is this year, this year for just a little bit longer, ACOG released new guidelines surrounding breach birth. And it's called ACOG Committee Opinion 745. We're linking to it into our blog. And it says that the, well, I'll just read it for you. (laughs) The number of practitioners with the skills and experience to perform vaginal breach delivery has decreased. The decision regarding the mode of delivery should consider patient wishes. Okay, I'm going to say that again should consider patient wishes and the experience of the health care provider. Obstetrician, gynecologists, and other obstetric care providers should offer external cephalic version, which is when they turn the baby, they like push on your tummy to turn the baby around, as an alternative to a planned cesarean for a woman who has a term singleton breech baby. Desires a planned vaginal delivery of a vertex-presenting fetus, which is like backwards, and has no contraindications guys what does that say you should be given options so i know it's going to take some time but if you have a breached baby find a provider that will support you through a vaginal birth or do a an external version for you yeah and i i i'm seeing
2: this before too where like if the baby's breached the external version's not being offered or it's oh not at all offered or only being offered at 37 or 38 weeks, and they, that option is given and saying, well, we'll try it, and if it doesn't work, we'll have a C-section that day, and if it does work, then we'll induce you right then. So it's important to really find a good provider that knows, is up to date with evidence base, and is willing to try a version and try these things to avoid cesareans.
1: Yes, absolutely. Not only that, but there are so many things you can do to turn a baby into a great position, like spinning babies and the myo circuit. Look those up. We talk about them in our classes there 's lots of things you can do and getting making sure your baby's in a great position in the first place is a really good way to avoid a cesarean or any other unnecessary interventions mm-hmm. like induction and pitocin and epidural mm-hmm. due to due to Di- more difficult labor because your body will be trying to fix that baby into a different yeah. position.
2: Well, and Hannah mentioned it too, you know, like, well, she was induced and she doesn't blame her, her baby for being in a you know, funky position because baby wasn't quite ready. So that's uh, another thing that can come into play. When you, would you feel like that, Hannah, like that kind of, yeah. plays into effect? Oh, into yeah. Oh
3: yeah. Yeah. I was reading a lot about shoulder dystocia too. And obviously I'm no, I don't know. Um, medical professional but I was reading a lot about it and it just made sense that she was induced and she wasn't in the the right position because she wasn't ready but she you know when you have to toast the contractions are so hard and they're so close together that she's just being rapidly pushed down in the wrong position yeah. so it made sense that she got stuck and it was difficult to me so I was like how does this doctor not consider that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of doctors aren't trained to identify that anymore. You know, you get told, oh, yeah, is baby in a good position? Doctors say, oh, yeah, she's head down. But that doesn't account to if the baby's coming in at an angle or if they're posterior, which is backwards, Mm -hmm. if you didn't know, or if her head's tilted a little bit, which we call asynclitic. There are so many other things to a baby being in a good position besides just head down.
3: And I don't know if you guys ever talked about um, the. Do you guys ever talk about the chiropractor? Yes. yes. <laughs> Did you do chiropractic care with your babies? Heck yeah. Yes. <laughs> he was an amazing chiropractor, and he said that he had flipped many babies before. So yep. I that yeah, was
2: cool. we we have uh so chiropractors here local to Utah as well that they have a reputation for helping babies flip. So, Mm -hmm. and I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it. I had a client who her baby went breech in the end and she went and after two times this chiropractor flipped this baby and she had a smooth, successful vaginal birth. And so chiropractic care is so big and not only in VBAC, you know, we talk about it with VBAC a lot because having your body aligned and, and everything is so important, but it really is for all moms like any mom having a baby and I know with my first two I was a little skeptical I was like yeah I don't think I want to do that (laughs) and then with my third oh my gosh night and day and I still I praise my chiropractor to this day because I swear that she she really helps this baby get in a good spot so yeah I agree chiropractic care is huge
1: all right I know y'all are just waiting for it. I know you're waiting for it. Guess what the fourth reason for initial C-section is. I bet you can't guess. Big babies or small pelvises. But we're changing the language. My baby is small. My pelvis is huge. Guys, we've talked about it so many times on our podcast. But in case you're tuning in for the first time or maybe you missed that part i'm going to just tell you a little bit more about it true truly having a small pelvis is incredibly rare and typically only happens in third world countries where the women are so malnourished that their bones grow in a deformed way or if you have a catastrophic injury to the pelvic area other than that Pelvises mold and flex, and pelvises expand. Babies' heads mold and flex. <laughs> Guys, the biggest of babies can get through the smallest of pelvises because pelvises are flexible. Babies' heads are squishy, they and mold. they mold. And being in a, a position besides being on your back, You know, being upright birthing is a great way to get a suspected big baby through a a suspected small pelvis. And let me tell you what we see, we hear it time and time again on our podcast. We see it time and time again as doulas, and we even had our own pelvises diagnosed as being too small, which is kind of a joke. But anyways, <laughs> if you didn't know, if your doctor is telling you, you know, big baby or small pelvis, then it might be time to find a provider that practices evidence-based <laughs> care, and that will have a, a conversation with you and give you options. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, I'm, if you guys
2: haven't heard my episode, on my second ep- the second episode, you can go check it out. But I had so many doctors agree and say, yeah, you know, that doctor was probably right but your pelvis is probably too small you'll probably never get a baby out of your pelvis and that just frustrated me so much because I was like I'm pretty sure that is incorrect I'm pretty sure my pelvis has some room in it so yeah and again chiropractic care Mm -hmm. and good good provider and good nutrition you know everything just added up to a smooth easy vaginal delivery
1: yep and there you have it
2: and here and here's Hannah being told you know, if your baby's measuring at eight pounds,
3: after then you I have had to a have
2: it. After you've had a night, yeah, which is so baffling to me. Even after, you know, like, yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, don't always, you know, don't, don't be scared to ask questions and don't always believe what you are told because those measurements can be off. Are they correct sometimes? Absolutely. They really are. They're pretty accurate sometimes but they're also more often than not very unaccurate. So, you know, I have... Inaccurate. A client because, I mean, inaccurate, yeah. <laughs> inaccurate. I had a, I had a client told that her baby was really big. Like, in fact, he even said, and that could even be off. This baby could really be 12 pounds. And I was like, oh, give me a break. 12 pounds. No, this baby was 7 pounds. Oh,
1: not my gosh.
2: 10 pounds. Or 12 pounds. <laughs> So, seriously oh it's so oh, wow. hard. It's so hard when um you know moms are getting these non-stress tests and these measurements and stuff like that so just go with your gut trust your instinct it's so important there are things that you can do to avoid an initial cesarean and when you're being told these things
1: really research it really you know don't be scared to ask questions Or find a provider who will actually have a conversation with you, instead of just telling you what needs to be done. Because that is a measure of of true informed consent. We've talked about informed consent before. We have a blog about it. We've talked about big babies before. We have a blog about it. We talk about. The four main reasons for c sections, and we have a blog about it, guys, educate yourself because with the right amount of education and the mama heart that we all have, you will know the right thing to do, and you will know Definitely. if somebody's telling you something that might not be as definite as it sounds.
2: yeah, hey, Hannah, I wanted to ask you, you know when you when you made your switch. Can you kind of describe how that felt for you? Like, were you nervous to switch? Did you automatically like, nope, I feel good about this? You know, how did you find your midwife? Can you kind of share for our listeners, especially our first-time moms that may be hearing this thinking, oh, I've been having this feeling, or I'm just not, not sure where I need to go yet? Kind of share with them your experience of that that process.
3: Yeah, I definitely you know i had this great after i switched i obviously i felt really awkward i was like you know do i need to call this doctor and confront her and tell her i'm not seeing her anymore or, and actually they called me and, and kind of asked me why but um so yeah it was it was definitely difficult and i was definitely scared cuz you know it was in the back of my mind what if i did have shoulder again happen and um so i was afraid and i was afraid that she you know this doctor put C-section in my mind, and I, so I was afraid that she could be right. But as I kept, you know, I just had to go with my gut feeling that it did not feel right. And and I had here, I had this midwife that believed in me, so um, I just decided, you know, I wasn't, I was still scared of giving birth without medical intervention, but I just decided it wouldn't hurt to call a midwife and ask her what she thought. And when she said that she believed that I could do it, and she was, you know, pretty certain. So that made me feel really good, and that's why I decided to switch. And definitely yeah. the best decision that I made, because I did forget to, to mention, too, with my first baby, how her nerve got damaged with the when her shoulder got stuck, too. So I was petrified that something like that could happen again to my next baby and I'm just really grateful that I let her come on her own timing and do what was natural. So I just really felt like it was the safest thing for her.
2: Definitely. Definitely. And you know how you said that awkward feeling, you know, it's like, Oh, well, should I call this doctor? And, you know, there, there are ways to kind of go about that. You know, you can, once you find your next provider, you can just have them request all of your medical records and have them transfer mm-hmm. care. And yeah. you don't really have to you know ever have to even go back or see or yeah. or deal with mm-hmm. that. And so it kinda takes that awkwardness away. I know it did yeah. for me, you know, the doctor that I um transferred to, he was so wonderful and he was like, I don't want you to have to feel bad because you're making the best choice for you. And yeah. Um, That wasn't my first doctor. The first doctor (laughs) told me, good luck, no one's going to want you out there. And that's where I was like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely changing. But when I changed from my other care provider, who I did love and I still love and adore, I know he was so supportive, but not everybody is. And so if you don't feel like you can have that conversation with your doctor, that's okay. Just know that the other provider can handle everything on their Mm -hmm. end, so it doesn't have to be awkward or
1: uncomfortable. Yeah,
3: and yes. that is actually,
1: that's what my provider did, too. Yeah. Well, so I went in weird. and <laughs> got my records, and when they asked me if I was transferring care, I said yes, and they asked where. And I said to home birth, the look on their faces, you think uh-huh. that I would have told them that I was going to sacrifice my baby after it was born? Like, uh-huh. they they. Either- you know, like, just the look of terror and, oh, my gosh, you're crazy. I just would definitely have liked to avoid that and know if I would have known that I could. <laughs>
2: yeah. See, and I didn't know that yet either. I went in and was trying to get my records, which, weirdly enough, they wouldn't give to me. I had to go to medical records, like, in the hospital to get it. But, yeah, it's you know, it doesn't have to be awkward. and. And if it feels right, then, you know, let let the, the next care provider handle everything for you.
3: Yeah. And just knowing that, you know, it's, it's just so worth it just to do what's maybe uncomfortable temporarily is long-term. Yes. You know, the, the memory I have now of giving birth to my second daughter is so beautiful and so emotional. I call it my healing birth. And um, yeah. I'm just so yeah. glad that I have it. It was so worth everything that I just did question, so. Right, right.
2: Well, awesome. Well, we hope that this episode has done some good to motivate you to, one, know that it's okay to do what's best for you, and hopefully we have been able to help you know and recognize the four main reasons for a cesarean. So if... These reasons pop up in your birth experience. You're aware of them, and we hope that we have helped you so you you feel like you can be confident enough to ask questions. Hey, guys. Did you know we have a new website? Well, we do. It is thevbacklink.com. We are always looking for new stories. To share your story and possibly be on our podcast, Post your story on social media and hashtag #WhyWeVBack and tag us at the VBAC Link, or you can complete the new form on our brand new website at theVBackLink.com/share. Don't forget about our online VBAC prep courses. To learn
1: more, head over onto our website. Be sure to rate us and share and leave your reviews. We are excited to hear what you think. For families local to Utah, be sure to check out our website, utahvbacklink.com for more information on our VBAC childbirth classes and doula services. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited for you to begin your
3: journey with us.